Today, I'm, I'm so uh, thrilled to be with you today, in particular with this story, and I'll explain it in a minute, but you know, there, you ever have that friend that shares a story uh, that just makes you cringe? It's just either so gross or it's told in a setting where it doesn't belong. So, you know, like a couple weeks ago. So, I mean, there's always, there's always that friend that does that sort of thing. It may have been, it may be, it may have been your father that did that. And you just sort of die inside a little bit. Or you might be the one that has conveyed such a story before. I remember when I was a little guy, my uncle had a hog farm. I grew up in Michigan and he, uh, he kept hogs and he still does, but he just keeps one or two. But uh, he wasn't a very successful hog farmer, but he tried to make a go of it. And so he had these, uh, so we would go, and any of you visited a hog farm? They smell delightful. And uh, <laughs> that's sarcasm. They ter- they're terrible. So we, uh, we went to Uncle Lee's hog farm, and uh, I, I, my brother, my older brother, had gotten a new BB gun that fortunately didn't have a lot, whole lot of force or power. But uh, my older brother, me, my, my cousin uh, Lauren, who is my age, we then were all around the, the farm shooting the, the sack hanging behind the male pigs. And we thought it was awesome because those pigs would find a whole new gear. They were like race car pigs when you shot that. We thought it was a good time. We were having fun. And then my Uncle Lee, he caught us doing that. And he didn't find it nearly as amusing because it's his like livelihood and livestock. Well, I thought that was such a great experience that the following Sunday in Sunday school... When Miss Brenda, our Sunday school teacher, asked, did any of you have a neat experience this week, I shared my story of visiting the farm, and I apparently said balls over and over. Now, I don't remember much about the story, but my mother taught Sunday school in the class next door, which was divided by a curtain, not a brick wall. So I kept uh, kind of uh, uh, telling this marvelous story of my adventures on Uncle Lee's farm, and my mother died inside hearing her son. I remember hearing about that and the inappropriate nature of talking about that, and I couldn't quite understand. I'm like, it's just livestock, it's just pigs, and they had ginormous gnats behind them, but it uh, it was a great experience. Well, this is like one of those stories, only this one's in the Bible, and it's in the inspired word of God. And when Blake sent out an email to Lance and to me, he's like, either of you guys have a story about, you know, like a sermon or a lesson you've ever done on Ehud and Eglon in the book of Judges? I I responded, I don't, but I have been dying to teach this in a public setting because you can't do this when a mixed setting. There's no way to properly do this in front of women. It's just one of those incredible, awesome, disgusting stories that involves a dude stabbing and a guy who's so fat that the knife disappears inside of his fatness, and when he uh, gets stabbed, he then loses all control of his bowels and empties them, so he just craps himself. And this is a terrific story. If it wasn't in the... This is a man's story. Better yet, this is, this is the story. This is proof that 13-year-olds had influence on what got included in the Bible. Because you know there was a whole, like, there's a whole committee. What should we talk about during the time of the judges? And there were two 13-year-old boys who were like, tell the story of Eglon. He traps himself. It's awesome. It's awesome. He's so fat. The sword just forgot it. And you know there were adults in the room and women, and they were like, no, 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 no. We don't tell that story. This is in the Bible. This doesn't belong in the Bible. But somehow, someone was asleep at the wheel, and the 13-year-olds got their wish. 
and it ended up in the Bible. And uh, what this reminds us of, though, is in the book of Judges, the heroes are really what's commonly referred to as anti-heroes. So it doesn't matter who the character is in the book of Judges, they're not that great. Even Gideon, who's like, ah, he's awesome, his story ends sadly. You can read it if you don't know the story. Samson, you grow up like, Samson, he's awesome, he's big and strong, and he loved to go whoring, actually. That was one of his favorite things, drink too. I mean, he loved to go and chase after ladies, and then eventually he just had total disregard for God's call on his life, and he pays for it, and the story ends really cool. He ends up dead. So, like, all the stories in the book of Judges are what's commonly referred to as anti-heroes. They're not, the, the joke of it is, if you grew up in church, you grew up with a lot of these stories of guys from the book of Judges, and they put them up on little flannel graphs, and like, wouldn't you like to be like Samson, you know? And then when we hit 15, they were like, stay away from the girls, really don't do that. Well, the story of Samson was, he couldn't keep his hands off the ladies. Well, he's an anti-hero. Because the book of Judges, if there was a theme verse, the theme verse is this. It is uh, Judges 17.6. In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There's the theme verse for the book of Judges. If every book of the Bible had a theme verse, Judges theme verses, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And that's important for us to know about the book of Judges, and in particular when we get into this story, because they kind of do what seems right to them. We might, if we were all taking a vote, go, hey, maybe we could play this story out in a little different way, but that's not how this thing works. They were doing the very best they could with what they were brought up to believe or know. It was the best that they could do. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And I don't know about you, I'm glad I don't live in a culture like that, right? Isn't it great that we don't live in a culture where people just do what's right in their own eyes? They're very principled people operating from... That's the sarcasm of my lane and I'm thinking of. Okay, I was just making sure. There was a moment there where you're like, yes, I'm glad that I live in a culture. All right. So, uh, yeah, Charlie's over there like, yes, exactly. That's our culture. So um, I want to just, before we get into this particular story, there's some fill in the blanks there, and there's a cycle of the judges... I just heard this, the A, B, C, D, E of the cycle of Judges, and I thought, this is so brilliant. It's very helpful for remembering the stories in the book of Judges. If you go from story to story to story, what you see is what's called a cycle. And A would be, if you're filling in the blank, apostate. That means they turn away from the truth. That means they become so self-deceived that they start doing what's evil in the eyes of the Lord. They become apostate. That's usually where the story starts. They did evil in God's eyes. B is bondage. Then they end up somehow under the thumb, under the dominion of some tribe in the area. In this case, we're going to find it's the Moabites, but it's, it's some tribe in the region. They end up under the thumb of that tribe. C, then after being in bondage for a number of years, it takes them a long time to wake up. They finally cry out to the Lord. C, they cry out to the Lord. And then D, he sends a deliverer. There's a deliverer. In this case, it's Ehud, but in other cases, it's Samson, or it's uh, Othniel, or it's, uh, or it's uh, Gideon. So they send a deliverer, and then there is ease. There's ease. So then the people take it easy. It all, you know, they, they, there's rest. They have, they have sovereignty. So they go from apostate to bondage. They cry out to the Lord. There's a deliverer. 
finally there's ease. And then the cycle starts up again. Which, by the way, this is why it's such a familiar cycle, because we see it too, you know. You could take the religious side out of it in our culture and go, you know, there's a group of people that are so, uh, they feel like under tyranny, and they, they cry out, they do something about it, there's a deliverer. It's part of American history and American mythology. There's a George Washington, and then he eradicates those evil, lousy British people and tells them to go back. Thank you for the trip here and defending us from the French. We appreciate that. We don't want to pay for it. Now go away. And so we are delivered, and then there's ease, and then what happens after there's a time of ease? People take it for granted. They get used to it. They become entitled. Have you ever noticed how entitled other people are? I don't know about you. I'm never entitled. But other people get very entitled. I can name them for you. I can list all those entitled people. But this is the cycle of judges. It's a cycle that lives in, a, in world history. You can explore it in world history. Anyhow, so let's look at it playing out in uh, Judges 3. If you have a copy of the scripture, we're going to be in Judges 3. We start with verse 12. It starts out, Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel getting the Ammonites and Amalekites to join him. So these are all tribal people, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Amalekites. And Eglon came and attacked Israel, and he took possession of the city of Palms, which is another name for Jericho, apparently had been rebuilt. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for how many years? Eighteen years. Eighteen. Well, I mean, it's funny, because 18 years ago today, September 11, prayed, prayed, for, prayed about that this morning. Eight, I have an 18-year-old daughter. It's just, that's a long period of time. It takes them 18 years to finally cry out to the Lord. So 18 years go by. So in verse 15, what do we see? We see they, they did evil. So they became, you know, looking at that cycle of judges, they became apostate. And then they turned, so they turned from truth to following, uh, following after their own evil inclinations. And then they fell under bondage. They fell under the Moabites. And so, quick history, I know that you're going, to hit, um, you're going to hit Ruth starting next week. I love it when a group of men talk about women. It's awesome. It's going to be good. Um, and I know I'm not going to take too much out of this for Blake, because I know he's going to hit it, but just a very, very brief history. Moabites are descendants, historically, in the scriptures from Lot. Lot is the nephew of Abraham, and he's kind of like a, a lousy nephew. Abraham's always rescuing his lousy nephew. He's kind of like the nephew with no backbone. Uh, and so he's constantly, talk about entitled, he's sort of taken care of all the time, ends up in Sodom, that doesn't work out very well, loses his wife as he leaves Sodom, which I'm not sure he complained about all that much, but he ends up drunk in a cave with his daughters who think, if we don't have sex with dad, we don't have offspring. Gross story, it's right there in the scriptures, it'd be unbelievable if it wasn't there. And the girls get pregnant, one of the kids is the is the Moabite founder. He's, the, he's where the Moabites come from. That's, in fact, modern scholars, they say, no, that wasn't true. That was just Israelites created that story to make Moabites look bad, end up the, you know, end up the offspring of the drunk daughter. I mean, that's gross. They were just putting it down. I would agree with historians if it weren't in the Bible, but it's in the Bible, so I happen to believe what the Bible says. The Bible tends to be right. Historians tend to change their minds. And... Uh, 
So that, then you fast forward about 400 plus years, King of Moab, I know you already talked about Balaam. This is one of my favorite stories. In fact, I told Blake, I wish I was given the opportunity to talk about Mr. Ed, the talking donkey, because that's just like one of my favorite stories. There's a, there's a biblical principle, even if an ass talks to you and tells you the truth, listen to it, even if it's a big, smelly, nasty ass, you still listen. Again, I'm not swearing that's in the Bible. Uh, and so... Um, then, and then, then Balaam, uh, he, he tries to curse, doesn't work, but he becomes a consultant. Apparently, fee for hire, and he says, send down your pretty girls down into the camp and tell them how to do naughty things, and the boys do it. And there's a guy named Phineas who plays shish kebab. It's in the Bible. He skewers a dude as he and a Moabite woman are doing it in the tent. Another story that you can preach to men that it's just awkward to preach in front of ladies, but it's right there. So this is all context of the Moabites. Great people. Terrific people. And so now they are large and in charge. There is a pun in that that we'll catch on to in a minute. Verse 15. uh, Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord. So there we're starting to see C, the cry for help. They cry out to the Lord. And he gave them a deliverer. There's D, Ehud. A left-handed man, which is kind of a funny little thing. That'll come into play here in a moment. The son of Gera, the Benjamite. So he's off of that tribe of Benjamin. The Israelites sent him with the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ehud, he had made a double-edged sword because he like had a Pinterest account and learned how to make things and thought a double-edged sword always comes in handy. It was about a cubic lawn, which is just perfect to fit right between your hip in your knee, and he just strapped it to his right thigh just in case he might need that down the road. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. Now, just to be clear, this isn't fat shaming. There is a reason that we're told that, and we'll talk about that in a bit. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he uh, sent on the way those who'd carried it. And the word tribute here, this is just one little side before we move on from the story. The word tribute, don't picture like gold and, uh, and um, silver and pearls and things like that. Tribute, that word is used over and over and over and over in the book of Leviticus. And it is used of the grain offering, the, the wheat and barley and such that would have been raised, would have been grown, and then that would have been harvested. And a portion of that, the tribute portion of that would be rendered under God as an offering to the Lord. This would be the Lord's share of the grain. That would be the tribute. That's what's used. That term's used over and over. So just imagine this tribute, the thing that was intended to be for God, who they were supposed to serve, instead of giving it to God with grateful hearts and an act of worship, they now have to give it. They don't get to keep it for themselves. They now have to give it to Eglon, who's getting fat off their grain. That's why we're told about his his rotundness, is because... He is, he is the recipient of this. But on, um, but on reaching the stone images, so going back to Ehud, on, he's, he's, he's given his tribute. He's with the fellows. They've just given a bunch of grain, maybe some donkeys with carts. Now they're heading out of town. And they get to, it says, they get to the stone images near Gilgal. And what scholars just assume is they're referring to some sort of sacred place for the Moabites. It wouldn't have been a sacred place for the Israelites, if they were faithful to God, they wouldn't have considered that sacred space. But because there's this reference to the stone images, some translations say the idols near Gilgal, it says that when Ehud got there, he himself went back to Eglon. So he says, guys, go on ahead. I've got, I gotta, I gotta, you know, I'm going to head back into town. I've got to talk to Eglon about something. And so he goes to Eglon and he says, your majesty, I have a secret message for you. 
And so presumably what happened, presumably, we don't have all the details, we have to sort of read between the lines, is he gets to the stone images, he's already got a plan that now he's going to enact. So he turns around and he must have said to Eglin, hey, you know, I hit the, I hit the sacred spot. When I got this sacred spot, a message came to me for you. And so, so Eglin thinks, well, this guy might be an oracle of the gods. And so, uh, so the king says to his attendants, um, you may all leave, and they all left. In verse 20 it says, it says, uh, Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace, this cool space in the palace. And he says, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud, left-handed, reached with his left hand, he drew the sword from his right thigh and he plunges it into the king's belly. Straight moment. Even the handle, it just is sort of, this is just a proof that 13-year-olds had influence on the writing of this thing. The handle sank in after the blade. So it's sort of like, just picture Jabba the Hutt. And there's the blade and it goes in. And there was a moment, I wonder if Ehud's like, I made that. I wonder if there was a moment where he tried to extract it. But whatever, it disappeared into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade. And this is where the story gets really good. Any of you still eating right now? Okay, just checking. If you want to go for seconds, this would be a good time for that. And his bowels discharged. In the original Hebrew, it says, he then cracked himself. Actually, it doesn't say that in Hebrew, but that's what he did. Ehud, Ehud. Ehud did not pull the sword out because Ehud at that point was like, I'm getting out of this room. It smells so bad. It says the fat closed in over it. Then Ehud went out on the porch and he shut the door of the upper room behind him and he locked it. This is a, this is a nice scene. Now you know why I never would want to teach this to the ladies, right? This is one, if you're married, when you go home, if your wife says, what did you talk about? In Bible study at lunch, you say, just man stuff. <laughs> That's what you do. And if she really presses you, just go, just read Judges 3, and you tell me if you want to talk about it. Because if she then reads it, she'll be like, I'm glad you have guys to be with. There, the, the dagger does its trick, and in the process, uh, and this happens sometimes when people die, they just void their whole system, and whether the sword just nicked the bowels in the right way or whether it just like killed him so instantly that just the pressure of everything, boom, it was gone. Just imagine, I just want you to just for a moment imagine the rush, the, the rich, lush aroma of a truck stop and a portage on that's tipped over and an open sewer. That's what you, I mean, you, we've all, you know, we've all been in that environment. I went into Walmart the other day, the one over on Penn, and nature called. You know how it does sometimes. And I walked in and there were two young guys in there and they were vaping. And they were so cute because I, I, we're all kind of the same vintage. When men went into the men's room to smoke, they smoked manly things, tobacco-related things. I walked through a haze of bubblegum vape. And I was like, you guys have no idea how to be a man. Get some, mar get some Marlboros. If you're going to do this, do it right. I'm not recommending it, all right? But, I mean, so 
I walked through, but then I walked and the stalls are down here and I walked in one stall and a possum had died and laid its carcass in there. I was like, not that one. And I went in another one and it had been like napalmed back in the 60s. I just said, I don't have to go that bad. So this is that scene. I mean, this is that scene. And it says, it says, this is, it gets better. As if, as if the story this is part of what we have to appreciate about the scripture. We can read through it, and because it's an ancient document, what we sometimes lose is sarcasm, humor. I mean, there's an old, there's an old story, this is off topic, but related. In the book of Judges, when a king of Judah goes up to the king of Israel, and they're kind of having a banquet together, and the king of Israel is like, I got a great idea, why don't you loan me your army and we can go fight together? And the king of Judah's like, I'm open to that idea. Do you have a prophet of the Lord? Because there were some other prophets, and they were Baal and Asher and all these other prophets. They're like, you'll win, you'll win. And so the king goes, yeah, okay, I'll get a prophet of the Lord. But he never says anything I like. And so he gets the prophet of the Lord, and the prophet of the Lord's like, yeah, yeah, it'll be great. You're going to win. It's going to be a good time. And the king's like, I told you, tell me the truth. I don't like it when you do that. He's like, all right, you're going to die. It's right there in the book. He's being sarcastic. It's, it's in there. So that, like I said, it's a little off topic. But the reason I bring that up is because this is laden with humor. We're, what we're doing right now, laughing as we read this story, the ancients would have done that too. There would have been a darkness to the story, and there would have been a grossness to the story. But as men sat around the campfire in a very oral-related culture where they would swap stories and go, you know what, let's talk about that story of Ehud again. That's a good one. I don't know if we should be doing that. It was, a, it was a chilly night around the campfire right now. You can imagine a bunch of guys were, you know, exerting gas. And be like, you know what that makes me think of? The Ehud Eglin story. And that's what we have here. So it says, it says um, after, after Ehud had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. And they're in the hallway. And those ancient buildings, don't picture like, you know, here, but those ancient buildings would have had a, a few more air gaps to them. And so the servants get up there, and they're like, what was in his omelet this morning? That was, that is awful. He must be, because they say it. They found the doors locked, and they said, he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the palace. And that's what they said. And you know that the other guy's like, he's not relieving himself in the inner room. He's doing it on the doorstep. This is off. They're making jokes. There's... There's latent Hebrew humor in this. And he said, and then they finally, they're like, wow, he must have, it must have been a week's worth of buildup that's finally coming out. But there reaches a point where it's uncomfortable, where they're like, we, we haven't heard any grunting. We haven't heard any movement. We smell a movement, but we haven't heard of it. You know, they thought that too. They probably said that in Hebrew. And, and they, finally, they finally find a key. It says, when they, it says when they waited to the point of embarrassment. But when he did not open the door of the room, they took a key. They find a key. They unlock it. And then they saw the Lord, fall, their Lord, fallen to the floor, dead, spread in all his glory and splendor with a trail of goodness. You know that at that point, they're like, draw straws, who cleans that up? And... Um, and there's this, there's this kind of gross final scene, and then it says, while they waited, Ehud gets away, he passed by the stone images, he escapes to Sarai, then when he arrived there, he blew a trumpet, 
in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites came down from the foothills with him leading them. And he says, follow me, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. So they followed him down, and they took possession of the fords of Jordan that led to Moab. So basically, it's the shallows of the Jordan River because it's either swim across the deep or it's the shallows. And so everyone is going to be like a, it's going to be like a funnel going to the fords of, of the Jordan. And so as they're there, Moab tries to come in. And it says, at that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites. I don't know about you, but if I'd have been a Moabite, I'd have just swam across the deeper patch of water. But they, they end up in this kind of clutch point. And it says, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites. Now, I love this. this is, there are occasions where the English translation of things fails us. And this is one where what's fascinating is I look scholar after scholar, they acknowledge probably not the right translation. But it says in most English translations, they were vigorous and strong. The, the more direct translation is they, they, they were rotund, staunch, fat. That's really the translation. So the reason why that matters is, again, this isn't fat shaming, okay? This isn't about that. This is about a comparison. You have, you have the people of God, the Israelites, in their disobedience, they're scrawny. I'll talk about this a little bit later. But they're scrawny, and the Moabites who are oppressing them are not scrawny. They have taken from the people of God what the people of God would have if they served God. All right, we'll talk about that in a minute. So it says, no one escaped. That day Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for, what's it say? 80, 80 years. Now that if you're doing the acrostic thing, now there's your E. There's your E's. They have E's. And, and I, I said up front, this is one of those, this is just an embarrassing story. This is like uh, men behave, behaving badly type of stories. You, you Gone are the, I, I love the noble stories in the Bible. I love the Moses standing before Pharaoh, a royal person, and saying, God says, let my people go. And then the plagues that come along with it. But Pharaoh is a nobleman, and, and, and Moses acts with courage and valor right there, opposing one another. The Red Sea story, all of the little battles in the wilderness, those are like valiant stories. Joshua taking over for Moses as he's about to cross the Jordan and take on Jericho. This is it's one of my favorite scenes in the whole of the Old Testament where Joshua goes up to the angel of the Lord and he says, are you on our side? And the angel of the Lord's like, no, I'm on God's side. You can be on God's side with me, but I'm on God's side. I'm not on your side. But it's still like this. You have an angel of the Lord that shows absolute valor. You have Joshua who shows valor. And then they take on Jericho. And all of it falls apart. And we get into the book of Judges. We don't get into noble battles. We don't have noble characters anymore. We have just ye old, average, everyday, run-of-the-mill, junky people like you and me. So in a way, it's a little encouraging. Because living up to Moses, I don't know about you, that's tough. I, have, I feel pretty good that I might live up to an Ehud sort of standard, you know? I might be able to hide a sword and stab a guy, you know? Okay, no, I really can't. I can't do that. You looked at me like, really, could you do that? I really wouldn't do that. But, okay, so, so here's the question. Why is this story here? Because every story in the Bible, if you think about it, God, like a surgeon, picks out stories that belong in the Bible. And there's no throwaway part to the Bible. Even when it feels like 
surely of all the things God could convey for all eternity, for our instruction at least here on this earth, couldn't he given us a better story than this one? So why is this story here? So here's some, here's some suggestions for you. Again, if you like filling in the blanks, what is this story trying to teach us? Number one, sin sneaks in and it takes hold. This story shows us in a very quick little nugget that sin just sort of sneaks in and it takes hold. It starts out as they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. But what's fascinating is, I don't know about you, I've known some people that have done some pretty evil things. And I don't mean like run-of-the-mill, we've all done evil things. But I'm talking like, I know some people who've done some evil things. But you know they always have justification for the evil they've done? I, I've never, I, I have yet to meet somebody who's done a truly heinous thing and said, you know, I was in my prayer closet bowing to Satan, and as I was preparing my heart to receive Satan into my life, I thought, today's a good day to do evil. No, they, they were just doing what made them happy that day. They were just playing comparison with someone else. They were just taking the advice of somebody else. They, they were doing what seemed right in their own eyes. And so you can imagine, so the people of Israel... God leads them into the promised land, but at some point, the promised land just becomes work like every other job. you got to go out and plow the field, and they're like, I thought this was a land flowing with milk and honey. There's a lot of rocks in this land of milk and honey, and there's not a lot of great natural irrigation in this land of milk and honey. You kept talking about milk and honey. I think I've said to before to this group of people, you want milk and honey, go to Ohio. The soil is rich and black and beautiful. You can grow anything in Ohio. Nation of Israel, that is not the land flowing with milk and honey unless God lets it flow with milk and honey. Generally, it's kind of arid. It's not ideal for growing stuff. Iowa, ideal for growing stuff. That's milk and honey. These are, these are people that life just got going. It got hard, got tough. They have to wake up every day with the roosters, and they have to do their job. They have to make stuff, and the making of stuff is difficult. And then they get married to a beautiful young girl, and her beauty fades, and she starts whining and complaining. And after a while, they're like, why did I marry her? And <laughs> sounds like life, doesn't it? And then what do they do? They talk to the neighbor, and he's like, you know what? I'd get rid of her if I were you. All right, you know what? You know what I found that really helped? Last year, my growth cycle was real extended. I'm pretty sure because I got an asteroid pole, and I just stuck it in the ground. The neighbor next to me got one the year before that, and it worked for him. Increase yield 10%. You want a natural pole? I'll sell you a natural pole. I got a good deal on natural poles. I'm selling them now. And the guy goes, well, it can't hurt. And that's how it happens. That's how it happened then. It's not like that people are like, God just provided all this, but I'm bored. I shall bow down to this. They just, it just happens a day at a time, a week at a time, and a month at a time. It happened to them. It can happen to us. Sin sneaks in. And then it just takes hold. The devil's oldest trick is right at the very beginning of the scriptures. God telegraphed it to us just in case we weren't too sharp. The devil comes up, the evil one comes up to Adam and Eve, and he says, did God really say that? He didn't really say that. Did he say that? I'm not sure he said that. In fact, I think that he's just a little nervous that if you do that, you're going to find out that he's wrong, and it doesn't really work the way he says it will work. In fact, it's going to work out pretty good. If you just ignore him, there's other... There's other forces at play in this universe, and so he's just one of them, and so just ignore him. I mean, that's, that's the beginning of God's revelation to us, is to show us what the evil one does. He still does it. You know, I'm not sure God really said that. Or they sneak in something else. I had a very dear friend, one of my longest surviving friends, 
we're not terribly close now, but um, he's, he, he, uh, he was in a second marriage. It wasn't going as well as he had hoped it would go. And so he told me, he's like, I met this terrific gal at work, and we get along great, and Bill, God just wants me to be happy. <laughs> and I, and I, 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 I was like, and this is a guy, he led worship in his church. This is a guy up in Michigan. So, uh, I mean, he was, he was involved in Bible studies. He once confronted me because I had a small Bible. I can't use small Bibles anymore because I can't see them. But I, uh, back in my younger years, I carried this little small Bible fit in my, bi- in my back pocket. This guy, I kid you not, he said to me, does that have any connection with your view of God, a small Bible? Do you have a small view of God? Like this is, it wasn't a guy who was casual Christian. I'm talking a guy who was very conservative in his belief. And he told me God wanted him to be happy. And I'm like, dude, here's your Bible. Find it in there. But somewhere along the line, he believed a lie that God wanted him to be happy. And what would make him happy at that point was to run off with a woman half his age that, uh, and leave behind his wife. And, I, and I, it snuck in. It took hold. And, and this is sort of the alarm bells for all of us. Book of Judges, it shouldn't, we should never look at the Book of Judges and be like, those people are so stupid. We should always look in the mirror and go, I am so stupid or capable of it. Okay, so it sneaks in and then it takes hold. This is what James says. Uh, you can write this down and look it up later. James 1, 14 and 15. He says, each person, each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and <coughs> enticed. Then after they, the desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is full grown, it gives birth to death. Congratulations, you have a baby. It'll kill you. But that's what it is. That's, what, that's the half-brother of Jesus. That's James who wrote that. Each person. Okay, so that's number one. Number two, this story teaches us that sin costs far more than the initial asking price. Sin, that's part of it sneaking in. Sin goes, it's only going to be a little my friend, I my, use him as an illustration again, since none of you will ever know. Uh, I, I said to him, I said, how do you think this is going to play out? I said, first of all, you have two daughters. I'm pretty sure they're going to reject you, particularly your oldest daughter, because she's older than the woman you plan to run off with. I'm pretty sure she's going to be very offended. This isn't going to work out. You're going to lose your relationship. No, no. They know, they know my marriage isn't very happy now. I think they're going to be happy for me. Anyone care to guess how that worked out? Ten, uh, eight years now has gone by. He hasn't spoken to either daughter. They haven't spoken to him. His granddaughter. He has grand. He has a granddaughter now. He's never seen, unless he has cyber stalked on Facebook. I mean, it costs so stinking much. The, the the challenge is is stopping the cost. Sin has this erosionary force in your life, and what you kind of go, I'm going to dip a toe in the water. All of a sudden, it becomes a habit, and it you. The people who did evil in the eyes of the Lord, they probably didn't wake up and go, today let's habitually disobey God. It probably started on a Thursday, and then it just got worse from there. But they thought, it'll only be for one day. We're just going to kind of, this is just going to be the one cheat day. You know, have you ever had a friend that is on a diet, and then you invite him over, you're not on the same diet, you're not on a diet at all? And, and, they're, and you're like, oh, I'm so sorry, you're on a diet. And they're like, that's okay, i got a cheat day. And then you have them over the next day, and it's cheat day again. <laughs> you, know, you know how that works? Cheat day is I'm never on a diet, right? That's how that works. And, and that, that's how, this is how this ha- 
the, the, the Moabites got the city of Palms, Jericho, and the Israelites, the Israelites got the hill country. So the, the plains went to the Moabites, the tough farm country, that went to the Israelites. Eglon and Moabite, they received the tribute that the people, the people were like, hey, we're going to save some tribute. We don't have to give it to God anymore. Now you have to give more of it to the Moabites. And also the Israelites, they, they end up on a forced diet they didn't intend to have. And the Moabites, again, the reason that it's referenced that they got so large was that it was the bounty. They didn't have to work anymore. They didn't have to go out and plow their own fields anymore. They just lived off of the Israelites. And that's what happened to the Moabites. And this takes, it, it steals 18 years of life. Think about 18 years just gone because of the disobedience. And this crazy part about, about sin is that it fails to deliver the outcomes we hope for. We think, if I, if I do this sinful thing, at least there's a trade I get out of it. And it never delivers like that, does it? I mean, can, think about, just reflect in your own life, if you've ever just sort of given in to some sort of sinful desire, and you know, I shouldn't do this, this, will, this is going to either break trust, or it's going to, it's going to disappoint people, or it certainly will have a negative impact on my relationship with God. In the, in the trade, have you ever gone, you know what, that was worth it. <coughs> I, bet, I bet you would be hard-pressed to come up with one illustration out of this entire room where we'd go, if I had to do all over again, totally engage in that sinful behavior. No, God can redeem We've all sinned, and God can, he's a redeeming God, so he can take the sin and he can turn something good. God could turn a terrible affair into a, a, actually a really God-honoring marriage years down the road, but you've got to go through some nasty swamp and hurricane to get there. God can redeem stuff. So it's not to say that it's all lost, I sinned, so well, life's over. That's not the message of Christianity. But what we see is that sin has a massive cost. Romans 6.23, this is what Paul says, For the wages of sin is death. What you earn for sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So there's good news on the back end, but the front end is ugly. So that's number two. Number three, what we learn from this story is we can't overcome sin through self-discipline. We can't overcome sin through self-discipline, but through repentance. I started reading uh, Mark Anthony's uh, Meditations. It's, it's sometimes called the Stoics Bible. It's a Harvard classic. It's a really interesting book. But what Mark Anthony, he was one of the, he was really considered the last decent emperor of Rome in the end of the second century A.D. And, uh, and he writes this thing, and Stoicism basically says, do the right thing. It's hard, it's tough, but it's the right thing. You just do it. But it's godless. It's not based upon faith. It's based upon just toughness of character. And there's a beauty to Stoicism in a way, having grown up sort of from northern European stock, Stoics is kind of like Germans and English people. They love Stoicism, and so that's kind of where I come from. But but I re started reading meditation. I'm like, good luck, good luck, can't do it, can't do it. Oh, man, that'd be neat. I wish I could, I wish I could. That's how I felt when I read it. I felt defeated constantly. I read the scriptures, and they're tough. They're tough, but doable. And here's why, is that you can't overcome sin through self-discipline, but through repentance. Now, repentance is a complete transformation of mind. Some of you know my story about uh, three years ago this summer. Uh, in the summer, three years ago, that is, um, I was diagnosed type 1 diabetic. Up until then, I, I, uh, I enjoyed lots of carbs, fried food, and pizza. 
and my friends who've known me for a very long time, uh, who didn't haven't seen me in years, every now and then, like, dude, what happened to you? Because I'm I'm about 50 to 60 pounds lighter today than I was through almost all my adult years. So when people are like, hey, what diet are you on? I'm like, insulin. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's a different one. It's a different one. Yeah, yeah, but how did you do it? I'm like, well, that's how the doctors figured out because I lost 60 pounds in the process of being diagnosed. In fact, at first they said it was type 2, and then, and then the doctor said it was type 1. And so I said to my doctor, that's good. I don't like to come in second place. <laughs> and he was like, diabetes is no laughing matter. I said, I'm the one with diabetes. I can laugh about it if I want to, all right? So I don't, I don't share any of that to make light of it, nor for sympathy. Why, why I bring that up is because I had tried every different approach to eating and exercise, and, and I was never fully committed until I thought, well, I could lose my vision or a limb. All of a sudden, it like got serious. I repented. I like changed. I, it's amazing how easy it is. I, you know, work across in the office, and like every three hours, someone drops off cake, brownies, donuts. Am I right? Right now, there is um, some sugar snack over there that there, there were. Yesterday, there was an email. Come on down. There's cake. Now, what I used to do is be like, cake. I shouldn't have cake. Well. I don't want to be rude. I better go check and see how people are doing. I'll just have a nibble or half of the cake, you know? That's why now I'm like, now nah, I'm not touching it. No, I didn't bring enough insulin with me. It's a complete change right up here. So it is with when it comes to sin, what we have to do is not fiddle around with it, have a little taste, try it out. Well, I don't want to be rude. Everybody else is doing it. You have to make a decision for yourself through the power of God living inside of you and go, that is wrong. I am not going to live that way. See, one requires, as I said, self-discipline. And I don't know about you, but my self-discipline ain't that great. Just to say, well, I'm just going to not do that. But if I have a change of mindset that says, well, I don't want to do that anymore. So uh, say, say around um, sexual purity. I've been married over 20 years. I don't want to disappoint my wife. I don't want to let down my Savior. I don't want to disqualify, disqualify myself from my call. I, I want to, I, I've told Karen over and over, my love for Christ is more, is bigger, more profound than my love for her. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be unfaithful to her out of fear of consequences. I, I love the Lord. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to dis- disappoint the Lord. I wouldn't want to create a barrier in my relationship with him. When you have peace in a relationship, you don't want to screw up the peace. That's a mindset. That's not, that's not just a matter of, well, I'm just, gonna, I'm just not going to look. I'm just not going to look. It's a change of attitude. And that's what repentance is, a complete change of mindset, a change of attitude. It is, sometimes we think repentance means I'm sorry. Well, that is one outcome of a true repentant spirit. But a truly repentant spirit changes the mind. It says, you know what, I don't even crave that anymore. I don't want to be part of that anymore. I want to live my, my life on a whole different foundation. So that's number three, and we're running out of time, so let me give you number four. <laughs> to conquer the power of sin in our lives, to conquer the power of sin in our lives, we need a deliverer. We need a deliverer. And that's really what the book of Judges shows us. Ehud, Ehud was a deliverer. Uh, some see in him like a lying assassin who is sneaky. And the truth is, is he doesn't really lie. In the old language, when he goes to e, uh, Eglon, he says... I have a secret thing for you. Now, we've translated, I have a secret message for you. 
But actually, that's not the word. It's a pronoun. It's, I have a secret thing for you. So he's like, he's got a message. And Ehud's like, I got a secret thing for you that I'm going to stab you with the secret thing. So he does tell the truth. He just doesn't fully go, I got a dagger I'm going to stick in your big belly. He does, that's, that would just be dumb to say that. So Ehud is an anti-hero, but he's not a lying assassin, though he is a warrior. But the whole point is Ehud is not perfect. And every time we come across, whether it's Moses striking a rock, or, um, or uh, uh, you name the, the person in the Old Testament, whether it's David, or any subsequent king after him, even Hezekiah. Hezekiah's like, oh, great king, great king. There's no king as great as Hezekiah. And then when Hezekiah is told the Babylonians and a future generation is going to take over and destroy everything, Hezekiah's like, well, at least it won't happen on my watch. Cha-ching! That's a great guy right there. Even as great as Hezekiah was, he, he, didn't, he didn't care so much about the future as long as it didn't affect him. That I'm not defaming these people. I, I, let me quote the great, um, the great poet Homer Simpson. You remember him? Right? Yeah, I can't believe that show is still on. It's been on 70 years now, I guess, you know? It started as a puppet show, I think. But uh, Homer Simpson, there's a, it's an actual clip. Uh, I, you can Google it and see it. Homer Simpson, there's a part, he's like, I got ripped off. This Bible's, this book was 15 bucks, and it says Holy Bible, and it goes, 15 bucks. Everybody in it's a sinner. Oh, but that one guy. It's, it's right there. It's in this interesting. Everyone in it's a sinner. Oh, but that one guy. And that's really what Ehud does for us. Ehud reminds us that God uses a deliverer, and when he uses people, they're imperfect. And every time this happened, the people are like, imperfect, imperfect, imperfect. Wouldn't it be great if we had a leader who is perfect? And we have one. And that's the whole point. Throughout the Old Testament, it all builds up to the very, very best of us. Isn't that great? Sistine Chapel. In the corner of the Sistine Chapel, there is an image of Noah drunk in his tent, or in the cave, or in the tent. And, and if you follow the Noah story, the most, the most righteous guy God can find, his story ends up drunk in his tent, cursing his son because his son makes fun of him because he's naked and drunk in his tent, which I think, I think at that point Noah deserved it. That's the very best of us isn't so great except for Jesus and so this is, this is what this story is in there to remind us of on our own we're in trouble but with Christ we aren't we have a deliverer and so while the people who rehearse this story around the campfire lighting their farts with each other you know while those guys did that you know at some point at the campfire, they're like, wouldn't it be neat if just once we'd get like a, like a really good story? That would be awesome. And what they wouldn't know, what they would yearn for, is something that we have the privilege of knowing, is that 2,000 years ago, one came who was perfect, is still perfect, and became the deliverer for us all. So hopefully that's an encouragement to you. Um, I'm going to close this in prayer, and then I'll stick around if you have any questions or comments or smart remarks. Lord, thanks for this group of guys. Thank you that they gave up their uh, lunchtime to gather, open up their hearts in the word. And Lord, thank, thank you for the stories in the Bible that are beautiful and elegant and also the ones that are just plain gross because all of them have something to teach us. So Lord, help us have open, receptive hearts, willing to hear, willing to learn. We thank you for it. I thank you for these guys. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Everybody said.
Amen. Have a great day.